0: hello and welcome to geek sweat i'm king dom and this is the inspiration interview where we interview inspiring filmmaking figures from around the world i'm joined once again by tj
1: hello dom thank you for having me back on this segment again i'm really looking forward to it
0: well thanks for coming our special guest today is a filmmaker and a film historian and an author it is stephen j rubin Hello from Los
2: Angeles.
1: It's amazing that you're in a different time zone and we can still speak to you, the power of technology at our fingertips.
2: Yes, no, it is wonderful. I mean, we're doing things that the ancient Egyptians could only dream of.
1: (laughs) Well, you're a vision on the screen at the moment. And thank you for doing the James Bond background because we've got you right in the uh, area, your area of expertise.
2: Well, I, just, been, yeah, I, I was just going to say that uh, uh, I've been having a lot of fun lately talking Bond because we finally got a Bond movie challenging to write the, you know, the James Bond movie encyclopedia and not have the movie to talk about. But now we can talk about whatever you want. And I'm happy to be here. I, I've always had a great fondness for the British Islands.
1: Thank you. I mean, we are talking about no time to die as the connection to your encyclopedia, but, um, were you nervous at all about the release date of James Bond based on, um, world events that have happened recently?
2: Well, I wasn't so much nervous as frustrated. Uh, my book came out last year, you know, fall 2020 and, uh, it sold pretty well, but there was no real media, uh, anticipation for it based on the fact that we didn't have the bond movie it's always i've always timed my bond books to come out at a time when a movie's coming out cuz obviously you get the attendant publicity reactions so i was a little frustrated well i was a lot frustrated i'll tell you why how i was really frustrated when i finished the book i was about to, well i wasn't quite finished but i wanted i was going to go out and see the movie Mm-hmm. so that I could incorporate as much of the movie into my book. And of course, there was no movie, and my deadline uh, came and passed. So I, I have to say that the producers kept a lid on the story better than they've ever done in the history of Bond. You know, you couldn't get a squeak out of anybody about what the story was. So I was able to put a, a lot of material in the book, but uh, it wasn't as much as I would have liked to.
0: So let's take you back to the beginning, if we can, Steve. You were born in Chicago, Illinois, and um, can you tell us a little bit about childhood memories that sparked your interest in cinema? What was it that first got you into your line of work?
2: Well, when we moved to California when I was four years old, uh, we eventually moved into a street that was about 150 yards from a movie theater. So uh, I grew up across the street from a, a theater. And this was in the late 50s, where on Saturday mornings, they had a double feature for young people. We, they, in, in the United States, they called them kitty matinees. So I would walk across the street, starting from the ages of six or seven. And uh, I would spend the day at the movies. I mean, it would cost American 35 cents. Uh, popcorn was a quarter. Uh, you get a Coca-Cola for a dime.
1: Wow! wow.
2: Uh, I'm not sure how that converts into uh, shillings, but it was just a little <laughs> bit of money. And you got two full-length features. You got a cartoon. And in the late 50s, the kitty matinees almost exclusively were science fiction and horror films. So I could take the science fiction. I would sit in the lobby for the horror films. Uh, I was definitely a a scaredy cat when it came to horror. But uh, I saw films like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Them, uh, War of the Worlds. All the classic science fiction films of the 50s started appearing in these Saturday matinees. So they made an indelible impression on me. And my parents took me to adult, more adult movies in the evening. So I was going to the movies a minimum of twice the week for six years. Wow. So uh, how could you not be a film lover? Plus my mother, both of my parents, but particularly my mother really had been a film fan, uh, extreme film fan. So she would tell me the names of actors, et cetera, et cetera. So I think at an early age, I was just programmed to love movies. Now this is also a period when there were movies on television at all hours, and starting in 1962 uh, with NBC's series "Saturday Night at the Movies," we started seeing primetime releases in 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 the major part of the day. So, um, I I went to um, I went to UCLA as a college student. I kind of was a journalism person, so I started writing for my college newspaper, doing interviews. And I kind of perfected the uh, way of doing interviews. So when I got out of college, uh, I, I thought I should try to write something, you know, be a writer. And my first book was called Combat Films American Realism, 1945 to 1970. And my film school, in a way, because I didn't go to a formal film school, was interviewing the filmmakers who made the great World War II movies. Uh, it was an anthology of chapters on movies like The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, and technically, not necessarily an American movie because obviously a very large British crew, but financed in America. So the, it was you know British and American films. We did The Great Escape, Patton, A Walk in the Sun, 12 O'clock High, Hellos for Heroes. Uh, for two years, I interviewed filmmakers. So I really got into it. Now, simultaneously, I started writing for a magazine in Chicago called Cine Fantastique, which was the first major international publication that dealt with science fiction, fantasy, and horror movies. I went back to those very same movies that I had seen at those Saturday matinees and started doing cover stories. Uh, with original forensic research you know I tracked down everybody alive who made the original day the earth stood still I had long interview with Robert Wise Um, I tracked down George Powell I did a long thing on the war of the Worlds. so this is when I started to get a lot of attention for my work amongst film geeks you know they really kind of uh, uh, really love the depth of research I was doing and I got a fan letter from leonard malton the great film critic all that all that was very inspirational to me i wasn't making a dime you know i I literally was making no money i had to support myself in other ways and my first book combat film sold 500 copies so uh, i had to have another (laughs) source of income but these were all very inspirational efforts that started me on my career in film
0: That's interesting. So right at the start, you were writing about uh, combat films. You were also writing about science fiction. So you didn't differentiate between the two genres. They were both of equal value to you. Is that right?
2: Yes. And I I was seeing all types of movies. I was seeing comedies and dramas and my parents exposed me to more adult themes, you know, uh, so funny. I have to be very careful when I tell people that my parents are taking me to adult movies. It sounds like I'm dealing with pornography. That's not the case. No, no, it's all, it's all. <laughs> and then then I, I realized that if I wanted to make any kind of living as a writer, I'd have to find a subject that would sell more than 500 copies. So um, I had read. Um, uh, let's see, I read read John Brosnan's book, James Bond and the Cinema, which was the first book that anybody had ever written about the Bond films. And uh, I realized that as, as good as the book as it was, it was really more of a tribute and an homage than a historical behind the scenes history. There was a need for a behind the scenes history of the Bond movies, mm-hmm. particularly by the mid 70s. So um, I resolved to use my skills in reaching out to people to see if I could get Cubby Broccoli to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And I went over to his office in the Thalberg building on the Sony lot. It was the MGM lot in those days. And I had a lengthy interview with him, probably um, two hours. And we had a good time. He told me all about the bonds and his, you know, how things were initiated. And then he offered to introduce me to Michael Wilson, in uh, London that summer of 77. This is the Star Wars summer, when Star Wars first came out. So I went over to England in 77 and I interviewed a lot of people, but more importantly, uh, Michael opened up the files to me. I got the call sheets from the first 10 Bond movies every day. And because I was a forensic researcher, I really wanted specific details when did they shoot the opening of Goldfinger? You know, when was the fight in from Rush would Love? And what's cool about the call sheets, it has all that information. It tells you exactly who came to the set that day, what scenes they were working on. They even they even had the names of bit players who aren't normally mentioned in final screen credits. Sure, sure. So it was for me a Rosetta Stone of information about the history of the james bond movies and i was thrilled to get that
1: so what was the last paid role that you did outside of the film industry before you started delving deeper into things like james bond and having meetings with people like cubby Broccoli?
2: I was a telephone operator. I worked in a large medical center, the UCLA Medical Center. My job on the phone was to call doctors in many emergency situations. So I kind of was perfecting my phone manner and dealing with, you know, important uh, communications. And I did this uh, all through the 70s. And then um, what happened was after I got back from Europe on that trip to do the research for the bond book, Um, I started, um, leaving my resume around and I got a job being the writer in a public relations agency in Hollywood. And I knew nothing about PR. I, I, it was something that I'd never even understood what it was. I think most people don't understand what publicists do, but I worked in an, an entertainment agency. And then one, one day a woman came in, uh, to get some photographs approved. And I started chatting her up a little bit, and she turned out to be a unit publicist. Now, uh, I learned from Phyllis Gardner, a really very nice lady, that uh, every film of note has a publicist attached to crew, the person who actually does all the PR functions, writes the press notes. Uh, escorts visitors to the set, works with a still photographer. There are like dozens of things that publicists do during the making of a motion picture. And uh, when Phyllis became head of MGM publicity, she hired me in 19, let's see, this would have been about 1979, 1980, to write the press kit for the Bo Derek Tarzan movie that had come out. Apparently, Bo had fired their publicist in Sri Lanka. So they needed somebody to gather all the press materials. So they hired me to do that. And I guess I did a good job. And then I was assigned to my first unit, which was kind of exciting. I was sent up into um, Wyoming to work on an Alan Rudolph thriller called Endangered Species that starred Joe Beth Williams and Robert Urich. And that was my baptism of fire as a feature unit publicist.
1: And do you have access to the individuals in terms of the stars or or are you communicating back and forth with uh, press and media and the, um, the key people like directors, producers on the film set?
2: Well, what's cool about the unit publicist position is you have access to everyone. Okay, okay. You uh you, you this the stars are basic you're in charge of all the PR related to the stars. They no one can talk to the stars unless they go through you. So I got to know uh the star well, it was my job. I had to get to know them very well to encourage them to do press. And during the making of a motion picture, actors are not that enthusiastic about doing press. It's like they're focusing on their roles. Sure. I actually worked on a film once where a crew from uh, from our electronic press kit came out to the set, and the only time they could be there was before shooting. Sure, sure. So we had to fa- kind of fake the interviews in the sense of, so what's it like working with this director? And they hadn't worked <laughs> with the director yet. Uh, you're kind of at the mercy of scheduling. You know, hopefully you can schedule press toward the end of a shoot sure, when sure. people have actually something to talk about. But there are many times when it, it doesn't work out that way. You know, the Entertainment Tonight, the the syndicated series that had just started uh, going on US airwaves, they say we're coming out on Thursday and you know, you have to accommodate them because they don't give you a second chance.
0: So, Steve, if I can take you forward to the 80s a bit, you worked on the well-regarded 80s comedy, Pretty in Pink directed by Howard Deutsch. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
2: Oh, sure. Sure. Well, I, I, uh, by then I had done endangered species. I had done porkies too. I had done uh, space hunter, um, desert bloom. And then, um, I went over to Paramount to interview for the publicity job on top gun. Wow. Now I was, you know, having written the book on combat films and being a lifelong interested person in military history, top gun would have been like, Holy moly. <clears throat>
1: Did you know it was a Tom Cruise film then or was he not attached when you were? Uh, oh, yeah, playing? well,
2: that, he was in it and I, uh, I thought I had a good shot. I sat down with um, Jerry Bruckheimer and had a nice interview, uh, but Paramount assigned me to Pretty in Pink instead. So oh. that was kind of funny. I think the fact that I'd worked with Molly Ringwald the previous year on her second movie, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, um maybe helped me a little bit but i ended up spending the summer of 85 working on pretty and pink for john hughes and that was a lot of fun mm-hmm. a lot of fun uh john hughes was just getting his his you know his, his momentum going he had done um uh 16 candles and he had done
1: um that's Ring ringwald as well isn't it
2: right exactly so um it's a very hip set. And mm-hmm. I got be, be friendly with, uh, Andrew McCarthy, James Spader. If you recall, Margaret Colin played the, uh, Jeff Goldblum's girlfriend in an Independence Day. Oh, wow. and, and she's, in, she's in uh, pretty in pink as a teacher, a small little role, but I remember her. Uh, it's a good cast shot in and around LA. Uh, we had, um, uh, that crazy comedian, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, uh, Andrew Dice Clay. Now, Andrew Dice Clay became a big, hot commodity later as a comic uh, comedian in, uh, in the, in the U- U.S. Well, he was a, just a bit player then. Also, we shot the movie on the Third Street Promenade in L.A., which is, uh, became a very prominent uh, social area in Los Angeles. At that time, almost every storefront was closed. It was almost like a ghost town. Mm-hmm. And uh, Annie Potts' uh, record store where Molly works in the movie, we had to turn a, a derelict building into an actual functioning um, record store. So that was a lot of fun. And, and I actually, here's a case of what I do. Uh, one day we were working in Annie Potts' um, record store and I went into the I I kind of went, went behind the building and I saw this very colorful wall. So I grabbed our still photographer, Laurel Moore. And I said, let's get Andrew. Let's get John Cryer. Let's get Molly up against this wall. I bet it'd make a good three shot. Mm -hmm. Well, that photo we took that day became the poster for the movie. Oh, amazing.
0: The iconic poster on a million student (laughs) walls.
2: Exactly. That was shot on a lark behind the building. And, uh, it was kind of just so much fun that, you know, the still photographers during the course of a shoot, shoot thousands of photos, then they do hundreds of uh, extra special photos. And then it all came down to choosing something that I shot, you know, I did, I organized myself. So that was thrilling for me. Absolutely. Right. So
1: I just wanted to say for any of our listeners who are hearing this, if you go on IMDb now, that is actually the shot that sat on the holding page for Pretty in Pink. If you go to IMDb.
2: Yeah, the, the what happens with a still photographer and i learned this uh then and then of course i applied that to later shoots i worked on is that you know you can be very creative you can come up with ideas and if the photographer is agreeable you're always trying to find opportunities for special photography to that could possibly be suitable for poster art and, and that helped me a lot it depends on the photographer some photographers are a little less inclined to do things uh, beyond what they were paid for. But uh, I've I've worked with some terrific photographers over the years.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, as um, someone who's lived in Los Angeles for almost their entire life, and has worked there many times, are there any films that you feel capture the essence of the city in the best possible way?
2: I just saw one of them last year. I thought thought Quentin Tarantino's movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, perfectly captured 1969. It's become one of my favorite films uh, of the last 10 years. And um, it's great. It's great. Another movie of the same ilk would be the um, Robert Altman movie, The Player. Mm. which also plays up, you know, what L.A. is like to be working in the industry. Those are two of my favorite films.
1: Excellent. And going forward a bit more, in 1987, you took a small career break and you decided to come back into the film industry a few years later. So did you have any, after being on almost a treadmill of working on film for film, meeting people and things like Pretty and Peak, speaking to Jerry Bruckheimer, what did you want to do differently when you came back to the industry?
2: Well, um, that's a good question. I think that um, I decided that, well, actually, I shouldn't say I decided. Uh, Circumstances sent me a certain way. I was hired by Jack Schwartzman, the producer of the Thunderball remake, Never Say Never Again. Uh, he and his wife, Talia Shire, the actress had a company called Talia Film. Okay. Okay. And in 1986, uh, they brought me I, I did two units for them. I did a movie called Rad. About BMX bicycle racing that we shot up in Calgary. And then we also did a movie called uh Hyper Sapien People from Another Star that was directed by Peter Hunt, who of course directed Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Both films were shot in Calgary at the end of 1985. And Jack brought me in for about a year to um do publicity on staff. In other words, I became director of national publicity for Italia Film. And then uh, when that job ended, I took on a number of national publicity director jobs. Uh, So I became not a unit publicist. I became a staff publicist. I worked for New Century Vista, which was a independent distribution company at that time. And then I went on to work for Scotty Brothers, Uh, In 1988 and 1989, they did the sequel to Eddie and the Cruisers. So I took on more of an executive position. I wasn't in the field as much. And that was enjoyable. And uh, then what happened uh, a little bit later, I I went back to unit work in 90. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I eventually go to Showtime, the American premium cable service. And I spent 10 years there. Uh, being a staff publicist, although I would work on all the L.A.-based shoots. So I had a little bit of my unit publicity background uh, utilized, but I was also involved on a team that promoted the movies.
1: Well, the thing is now, you've already worked on some shows with up-and-coming people, films with up-and-coming people like Andrew Dice Clay, John Cryer, Molly Ringwald, and even James Spader, Then you have a really productive year around about 1991 where you end up on a film called Pirates, which is featuring Kevin Bacon and Kyra Sedgwick. Then you follow that up with Gladiator featuring Cuba Gooding Jr. early on in his career. And then Rick Moranis in Honey, I Blew Up The Kid. So these were like really big or at least well, well announced feature films. What was it like to be on that trajectory?
2: Well, um, after some of my staff positions dried up, um, I needed to get to get back to my you know to make a living, and um, I, I had a real uh, run of interesting films. The one you didn't mention, which was probably the least successful of the group. Is a movie called "The Taking of Beverly Hills," okay. which was a movie kind of uh, inspired by Die Hard, in which a group of thieves come into Beverly Hills and fake a toxic spill, and they clear everybody out, and they're going to rob every store on Rodeo Drive, the you know the prominent shopping area of Beverly Hills. What was interesting about that film is they couldn't get the city of Beverly Hills to approve them doing shootouts on the street. Okay. So they went down to Mexico and in one of the poorest neighborhoods of Mexico city, they built Beverly Hills, particularly Rodeo mm-hmm. drive. It was the most wow. astonishing film set I've ever seen. And you know, who designed that set mm-hmm. was Peter Lamont who would later win the Oscar for Titanic. I see the wow. poster behind you there yeah. and did all the bond movies. So mm-hmm. I got to be just as my first, um, uh, my Actually, I should say my second book, The James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, came out. I was working with Peter. So uh, he actually mm-hmm. contributed photos to the film, uh, to the book. And I got to work with his team. And this mm-hmm. is the same team that he would hire mm-hmm. to do the Bonds. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I was in very good company. But that was an interesting shoot because I was three and a half months of night shooting in Mexico City okay. for me. And then, is- of course, The Honey, I blew up the kid. Mm -hmm. was just a thrill for me because I got to work on the Disney lot for three months.
1: Mm -hmm. I just want to add one more factoid to the film, uh, The Taking of Beverly Hills, Um, because in the UK, we were exposed to the media icon that was Max Headroom. And this is actually one of the few feature films where Matt Frewer gets to play himself without prosthetics as well. Matt Frewer is obviously the actor performer behind the Max Headroom brand as well.
2: Well, I'll tell you an interesting story about Matt Fruer there's a scene in the movie where he and um, our leading actor um, whose names just escaped me for a second.
1: We've got Ken wall, Matt Frewer.
2: Yeah. Ken wall and Matt Frewer are hiding inside of Beverly Hills mansion when the thieves drive an armored car through the front door and almost run them over. Well, I was present the day we shot that and the scene involved the door flying open and Matt and uh, Ken racing through another door. But what they didn't understand was when the door flew off the hinges, it struck Matt Fruer, and he went down. Wow. He's under wow. the door as a 4,000 pound armored cars driving up the door. We almost killed Matt Frewer that day. Oh. It was horrifying. He was white as a sheet. Fortunately, the, the armored car stopped, but that was one of those frightening moments in film where you wonder if you're, if something has gone totally awry.
0: Wow. Was that the closest you've ever come to a tragedy on set that you've witnessed?
2: Yeah, there's no question about it. And Matt was shaken during that day and, uh, It was just one of those things that happens you know they didn't realize the door would fly so far and knock him down on the ground so yeah i uh you know i've uh, i've been very aware of the challenges of shooting action sequences and fortunately uh i i've worked on so many films where it's everything generally works out fine that was just one sequence that just could have been tragic my goodness
0: absolutely and um, uh, right after that uh, you went on to the disney lot um, what was that experience like doing honey i blew up the kid
2: oh that was a thrill for me because uh uh it was such a fun movie i mean the, the honey i shrunk the kids had already been a big hit and they decided the original title of that movie by the way was honey i blew up the baby they thought that was a little uh, uh a little uh, oh, challenging nice. for a title so it uh uh they changed it to honey i blew up the kid uh uh, it was interesting to see a movie being done in kind of the pre-digital effects age where all the effects were done in camera so are we Uh, talking
0: about like forced perspective that kind of thing
2: forced perspective exactly and uh it was fascinating to see the way that they had miniature sets and they had, uh, you know, because they were working with the, the the Shalikar twins who were, you know, we were, I don't know, four or five years old or maybe two or three years old. I can't remember, but uh, it was interesting to see that play. And then um, I, here's an interesting thing, again, talking about how publicists influence, influence movies. Um, every major f- film starts with a group read where all the crafts sit around. And talk about scene by scene how the movie's going to be made. I mean, you're sitting at a round table or a square table with everybody from directors of photography to prop masters, costume designers, special effects people. And generally, I, I don't say much in those meetings. I'm just there to observe. So at one point during it, we're, we're, we're reading the we're reading the scenes and, and there's a scene in Honey, I uh, Blew Up the Kid, where... Uh, Rick Moranis' character goes to a huge warehouse to find his original shrink machine. And I turned to somebody I was sitting next to and I said, because it's a huge warehouse with 12 billion crates. I said to somebody, wouldn't it be funny if if they walked past a crate that said The Lost Ark of the Covenant? Right. So uh, so the guy whispered something to the guy next to him and it went all around the table. And Ed Feldman, the producer, looked at me and said, it's not a bad idea. And would you believe it? Not only is that in the movie, but when they variety reviewed the movie, they actually mentioned that in the review. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So I I love that. I mean, it's just the fact that you came up with a little brainstorm and there you go.
0: Yeah, well that, that's clearly one of your talents, spontaneously coming up with good <laughs> ideas. Oh, wait, so, Steve, we've got to move on to the next part of your career, because you've already been a unit publicist, a corporate publicist and an author, and then you've directed your own documentary just after this called Return to the Great Escape. So how did that come about and what were your intentions in doing it?
2: Well, actually, to preface that, uh, when I did the uh, unit publicity for a movie called Desert Bloom for Columbia Pictures in 84 with John Voight and Joe Beth Williams, who I was once again working with, having worked with her on my first film, Endangered Species, I had already worked in a company doing electronic press kits. Uh, Ivan Reitman, who hired me on Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, actually Wanted me to be the unit publicist on the original Ghostbusters. But I had met the head of this company that had been doing EPKs at that time, electronic press kits. And rather than be the unit publicist on Ghostbusters, I decided to go to work for a company making these films because I really started to fashion myself as a potential filmmaker. So um, I started doing uh, these behind the scenes photography. Interestingly, I worked on Ghostbusters. It turned out I was uh, one of the producers of the behind the scenes. So we we shot on all the sets. So I still got a little taste of the film, but from a different perspective, I was starting to move in the way of a filmmaker. And I started doing these uh, electronic press kits. I did it on Desert Bloom, and then uh, what was the title you were telling you asked me about the uh, Return, Return to the Great, Great Escape? Return to the Great Escape. So when I went to work for Showtime in 1992, uh, when we had the film under license, The Great Escape in '93, I suggested the idea of doing a 30th anniversary documentary on that film, and. Uh, that was great. Uh, I I went over to um, Munich and with a video camera crew, we shot on all, a lot of the locations where they made The Great Escape. And we were in Munich at Geisel Gastag studios. And then we interviewed virtually everybody who was alive at that time who had worked on The Great Escape.
0: So are there any interviews that stand out from that time? Is there a plethora of stars associated with it? Is there one oh, yeah. that you recall now?
2: oh yeah um i I particularly enjoyed um uh james garner who played uh you know the scrounger henley uh Mm -hmm. he didn't want to do the interview he just felt it was old business but john sturges the director had recently passed away and when we mentioned that the documentary was a tribute to sturges garner came around and we went to his home in brentwood Filmed them in his backyard. And that was a thrill for me because I'd always been a big James Garner fan. And then uh my partner, Deborah Goodwin, she went over to Southern France and interviewed Donald Pleasants, who was just so darling and fun. And we learned all about the fact that he was a prisoner of war during World War II. He was actually a, a POW, so he brought a great deal of perspective to um, you know, to the the documentary and uh, a lot of interesting interviews. Uh, Judd Taylor who played the other American opposite Steve McQueen was terrific and he would go on to direct the sequel, which was a television movie about the investigation into the deaths of the, of the prisoners. So uh, all around, it was just a great experience. So
1: as a film historian, What would you say now, having done like a a magnificent job on something like Return to the Great Escape, what would you say are the three major rules for making a great documentary about a timeless movie classic?
2: Uh, I would say one of the most important things is access, making sure that you have interviews with the filmmakers. Ever since I started doing... um. Retrospective articles for Cinefantastique back in the day. The key to the success of my articles was basing it on firsthand research. I wasn't just quoting interviews with the per- people who had already done the interviews. I actually spoke to them. So in documentary work, um, you've got to if you can get to your sources that actually made the show. So you're getting firsthand information. Sadly, sometimes nobody's around. You know when I did. Um, War of the Worlds for Cinefantastique where uh, there weren't really a lot of people around who had made that movie. The director had died, the writer had died, but George uh, George Powell was there and he, he gave me a great interview.
1: Now, moving forward again, because there's so many things to kind of look at in your career, you end up on another production, which is a sequel called Weekend at Bernie's 2, which was in 1993. And you're also in the esteemed company of a director that we know, John Carpenter, on the film Body Bags, which I think featured Stacey Keach, as well as Lush Life. So moving around these features with um, Hollywood Bohemus and the last one, Lush Life, actually featured Forrest Whitaker and Jeff Goldblum and a young Dong Cheadle. What did it feel like for you, getting access to those type of films and that type of talent in at that stage of their career?
2: Oh, it's always fascinating to work with actors when they're on the front lines like that. I mean, you get to know them, you get to hang out with them. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I'm very fortunate that I've been able to work in film all these years because Uh, When I I was a publicist pretty much off and on for about 30 years, having access to actors as they're working is a great honor and a great joy. I mean, the nice thing, the nice thing about being a publicist is that when you're in the office, nobody on the set knows what you're doing. And when you're on the set, nobody in the office knows what you're doing. Most of the time, they have no idea what you're doing because, you know, publicists kind of operate in a different uh, ether. And uh, I had a great deal of freedom. Now, there are stories of publicists that just phone it in. You know, they, they say, you know, they hang out a little bit and they go back and write up a piece of paper or something. I mean, I got to the point, the comfort point, where I could walk into, uh, onto a set. They're filming a key scene with major actors. Mm-hmm. And I'd walk up to the first assistant director and i say, after you finish the scene, I need the set for 30 seconds. So in front of a crew of 150 people, I would get the set and I would be able to position my still photographer so he could get a proper photo. Because a lot of times, if you think about it, when they're making movies, the still photographer isn't exactly what they're thinking about. They're thinking about getting the motion picture image. And it's completely impossible for the photographer to get in there because there's Mm -hmm. nine other people standing in front of him working with the actors. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to manipulate a film set so that I could get the time for my photographer to get the proper photo. And uh, that is not a skill you learn overnight. You have to befriend everybody, particularly your assistant directors, because if they don't know you and they haven't worked with you and you didn't bother to learn their names, Mm -hmm. crew people on film sets have no interest in helping you because they are so focused on their specific tasks. So over the period of months when I'm working on a film, I would get to know everybody's name their positions. I would befriend them, tell them what I'm doing so that if I needed the set, they would give it to me and they would help me. I would get, I, and when I was doing those specials, I was talking about like the pretty in pink photo, Mm -hmm. I could get hair and makeup to come over and do touch-ups. I could get the lighting person to keep the lights on. I learned, uh, learned painfully on one film that because I did not befriend the lighting director at a key moment, I had a crew on a set to do a video interview, they turned off all the lights on me and they went to lunch. Wow, wow. You know, The lunchtime period is often a time when you try to get some work done because the crew gives the setup. But because I hadn't befriended that one lighting guy, uh, they turned the lights on, on me. So I learned a valuable wow. lesson that day.
0: Wow. So I guess at this point, we should just um, ask you, Steve, are there any films lots that you were personally involved in that you feel have been really well marketed in terms of having an iconic image associated with them like your pretty and pink image
2: uh well it's <laughs> uh, we did a television movie for showtime which was a remake of the great um uh, courtroom drama 12 angry men and uh i i brought out a very famous photographer in america who uh, uh david kennerly and he shot a classic image of all 12 men, which became very much part of our publicity campaign. Obviously, 12 Angry Men is a movie that takes place on one set. And by the way, I don't know if I uh, i know we can talk a little bit about what I've been doing these days. I'm, I'm focusing on my screenwriting, and we just wrote a spoof of that movie. We've written something called 12 Anxious Men. And it's right. uh, it's, uh, it's 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 a very very funny spoof, and I was definitely inspired by having worked Sounds on the remix. Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, I, we're focusing a lot on comedy right now, a genre that I feel needs a a large B twelve shot because there's not a lot of great comedy features out there.
1: Sure, sure.
2: Mm. That's the truth.
0: So taking you back to the early nineties. I think after the film that you mentioned, Steve, you went with Robert Rodriguez, who was then very hot after doing El Mariachi. What was it like publicizing such an in-demand director at that stage of his career?
2: Well, Road Racers was part of a series of remakes that Showtime was doing based on Roger Corman and AIP-type movies of the 50s, You know what we call the motorcycle and leather uh, crowd, Uh, What a fascinating series to work on. I mean, uh, John Milius was directing Motorcycle Gang. Um, We had Joe Dante directing Confessions of a Sorority Girl and all these kind of V exploitation movies were seeing uh, a new life. And one of the titles was Road Racers. Now, I didn't know who Robert Rodriguez was really. We'd heard about El Mariachi, but What a force of nature he was. I mean, he was doing everything. I have, I remember an image where instead of doing a dolly track, he climbed into a wheelchair and held the camera in his lap. And people, they would roll him around the set and he would take pictures with his camera. He was, uh, he was an inspiration to me because he, at that by the early 90s i was starting to think about how do i produce my own motion pictures how do i get involved in that end of the business having been a publicist for 35 years i really was starting to think that maybe i could make movies on my own as a producer and he was very inspirational his his basic advice to me is just go do it and, and you know and i love that and uh, i've always been a fan of his work ever since he was back in 90 let's see that would have been about 90 six or 97 he was a real maverick you know i'm doing this my way out of texas and we were very fortunate to get him on the film but we broke a lot of actors in fact road racers the co-star opposite uh, david arquette was salma hayek and salma hayek was virtually unknown at that time who, nobody knew who salma hayek is mm-hmm. and um i i had a lot of fun working with people on that set. we you know we broke renee zellweger she was an unknown Uh, The girl uh, from Clueless, uh, Alicia Silverstone, was virtually just right off of Clueless. So it was a nice series to work on, a lot of fun.
0: Wow, amazing. And also around this time in the 90s, you actually wrote a book on how to be a publicist.
2: Yeah, you know, the, the thing was, as I explained to you earlier about working with still photographers, there were virtually... No books on being a unit publicist. Um, When I got my first job way back in 81 on that movie Endangered Species, I thought that was great. That was great. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I called up Vic Haichi, who was a prominent veteran unit publicist and took him to lunch, figuring I'm going to talk to somebody who has my job and he'll tell me what I need to do. Well, I discovered that publicists as a rule, don't share their secrets. Um, The only thing I remember him telling me was um, never bring a film crew to set before lunch. Mm -hmm. And of course that was, that that information was completely useless because you're at the mercy of what their schedules are Mm -hmm. like. If, if uh, you know, uh, if sky television or whatever comes out to your film set to do interviews, they come out when they can come out. And so you have to be ready whenever they're available. And just like I said, I had to work on a show where they hadn't even started working yet. And I had to do the interviews at that point. So um, it was was very challenging to get any information. And I went up to Wyoming on that very first feature. I had been told that the people who would be coming to set the journalists and writers who would be covering the action, the names would be uh, provided by the New York office. So I'm up there in Wyoming, waiting and waiting and waiting. We're halfway through the film and I've heard nothing out of New York. Finally, I make the call and they say, oh, no, 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 you're supposed to come up with the ideas. So, you know, obviously they they had not given me any instructions. So I ended up bringing journalists out uh, late in the shoot, which was fine. But uh, all of this information was critical. So I decided to write a book on how to publicize and promote movies, not only as a unit, but just in general. And uh, the book um, was very warmly received and it still is kind of, even though it's out of print, people still purchase it on Amazon and find it useful because I got into every aspect of what I was doing, including psychology and how to deal with uh, actors in difficult situations.
1: Cool. Another book that you wrote and you mentioned it earlier uh, at the beginning of the interview, was Combat Films. Now, you went and did a different version, which was called Combat Films, American Realism, 1945 to 2010. And you released that in 2011, so it was more up-to-date, included the canon of American films that has come out. But in your specific opinion, with all of that research at your fingertips, what combat film do you feel or find is the most realistic.
2: Saving Private Ryan. Um, I made a point when I updated the book in 2010 that I had to do a chapter on Saving Private Ryan. And um, not only did I do the uh, new chapter on combat films, but um, in 19 uh, in 20, let's see, 2018. uh, Three years ago, I did a 20th anniversary story for the Los Angeles Times where I was able to interview Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. It's funny because we were on a family vacation in Scotland that summer, and I'd put in the request, hoping I could get the interview with Spielberg. And in the middle of our vacation in a little town in Scotland, I get a phone call saying Steven's available tomorrow. So I had to scramble and make sure that I had a good phone line with excellent Wi-Fi (laughs) because Steven Spielberg's calling. And I had my whole family in an uproar. It was, it was like a scene out of a movie. You know, Steven's <laughs> calling, Steven's calling. And uh, I was granted, um, I, I think I was granted 10 minutes and I got 40. We had wow. such Excellent. a spirited conversation. I had done my research properly. He was impressed with my knowledge of World War II movies. So I got 40 minutes with Steven Spielberg, which was a thrill.
1: Amazing. Well, to go from the impeccable Steven Spielberg to something more bizarre. You also did an encyclopedia about a Rod Serling series called The Twilight Zone. Now, for people who are not familiar with this series, it's one where ordinary people find themselves in extraordinarily astounding situations and having to make, like, curious decisions to kind of find a resolution. So this book or the encyclopedia, the Twilight Zone encyclopedia came out in 2017. What would you say is the strangest or most ominous fact that you discovered researching that encyclopedia?
2: It wasn't so much the facts, but what happened to me in researching it. I I have a story that it comes right out of the Twilight Zone. you know the book the book is examines every episode and i poured as much behind the scenes and once again i interviewed everybody i could find who had been in the original series which had 156 episodes ran from 1959 to 1964 So one of the things since Rod Serling had passed years before at the age of 50, I became very friendly with his widow, Carol, Carol Serling. And she opened the files to me just like Cubby Broccoli opened the files to me back in the day. And uh, I asked her one day, you know, Carol, what motivated Rod in terms of the subjects he wrote about and his interest in telling stories? And he said, you should read his personal copy of all of his stage plays which had been published, you know, uh, not stage plays, but his live television plays from the New York live uh, television era. You know, he first came to prominence in the middle 50s doing shows like Requiem for a heavyweight, which Sean Connery would later do in London, mm-hmm. um, and Patterns and The Comedians. So it has a long preface where Rod talks about his motivation for telling morality plays in TV. So uh, she hands me this book, and I bring it home, and I'm thrilled to have a source like that. But I had been called to some dinner thing, so I left the book on my desk in my office at home. I came back two hours later, and the book had vanished. Now, I'm sitting there trying to figure out, wait a second, nobody's broken into the house. There's no sign of entry. There's no reason this book isn't sitting on my desk. And I looked for the book for three days, and I never found it. And it just disappeared into the ether. I, I have a feeling it went to the Twilight Zone.
1: Wow, <laughs> wow incredible.
2: <laughs> of course, I had to call Carol up and say, I lost your book, and yeah. I felt horrible. It was Fortunately, it wasn't inscribed. So I was able to go on eBay and find the exact same book for $100, and I got okay. it to her. But when I came to her six months later to ask her if I could use the stills from the series to illustrate my book, she said, you have to photograph them in my office. I'm not going to let them out of Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Understandable.
1: She's <laughs> worried about that black hole in, that was on your desk.
2: Yeah. The other thing is I went to a symposium in uh, Binghamton, New York, where Rod grew up. They have a uh, Twilight sim- Symposium there. And the funny thing is, um, Nick Parisi, who's another author of Twilight Zone books, asked me if I wanted to go see uh, Rod Serling's house where he grew up in. So that was kind of a nice little trip I took, you know, in the neighborhood. And a lady came out of the house and introduced herself as the owner of that house. And she offered to take a photograph of the two of us sitting on the porch. I thought that was great. Until a few minutes later, I looked at the photograph and it was in black and white. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's impossible because I had an iPhone and to make a black and white photo, you have to click a few buttons. So that is another kind of Twilight Zone moment. I think Rod Serling was communicating with me in those days uh, through the spirit world.
0: So from one of your encyclopedias to another, because Steve, you've written the James Bond Encyclopedia. But before you did that, you made two documentaries about Bond films. The first Casino Royale from the 60s and Never Say Never Again. So what was the most bizarre or unusual fact you uncovered in the making of those documentaries?
2: Oh, it's easy to remember, because uh, I was startled by this. Um, One of the kind of, uh, in in a way, one of the black holes you get drawn into with the history of the Bond movies is nobody can tell you much about Gregory Ratoff. You know, Gregory Ratoff was the first producer to acquire an option. He optioned Casino Royale long before Broccoli had the regular series. So, uh, we were interviewing uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr., who contributed to the screenplay of Never Say Never Again, but was uncredited. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're lucky. at the end of the interview, he says, By the way, I should tell you a little bit about my relationship with Gregory Ratoff. I said, Oh, yeah, that's great, because this is filling in information. In the 1950s, Gregory was hired by, I mean, excuse me, uh, Lorenzo was hired by Gregory to talk about story elements for a Bond movie. This is about 1956 or 57. Mm-hmm. Um, so way before Broccoli and Saltzman get together in 1960. And since Gregory was under contract as an actor, I guess also as a producer at Fox at the time, he actually tried to make the Bond movie as a vehicle for drum roll, please, Susan Hayward. The first person to play James Bond was going to be a woman incredible and and this is fact i think some of the london papers picked this story up when I, I was talking about this earlier this year uh but it is extraordinary that gregory was actually thinking of making the james bond character a woman and of course it didn't happen and it would have been a disaster because we probably would have seen i don't think the bond series could have survived that um because mm-hmm. it wasn't really designed for a woman and um not to say that there couldn't be a female James Bond, but she should have her own series. Yeah. All this, this this kind of talk recently that Lashana Lynch was being groomed to play James Bond is all you know, hearsay from people who haven't seen the movie. Obviously, if you see the movie, you see No Time to Die, you realize that Lashana Lynch is not James Bond. She just got the 007 moniker.
0: Mm-hmm. We're going to come back to that later on, I think. But if I can ask you a more lighthearted question, as an expert on the Bond film to have seen everyone, do you have a favorite and least favorite edit from the whole franchise?
2: Well, uh, over the years, I've adjusted my number one. So now it's always been Goldfinger as number one, but I consider the first Daniel Craig Casino Royale right up there. I think they're one uh, one, and one A. They're They're just perfect Bond movies. Uh, my top five from Russia with love, uh, Thunderball, Honor Majesty, Secret Service, and of course, uh, uh, Skyfall. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, hard with that.
2: Uh, least favorite Bond movie, I would have to say, probably A View to a Kill. I just, uh, aside from John Barry's wonderful music, I just have not a lot great things to say about A View to a Kill.
0: Well, we'll leave it there. On a positive note, Dom Barry's great music.
1: Cool, cool, cool. And Steve, could you tell us a bit more about your research on the James Bond encyclopedia, which is now in its fourth edition? What insight will readers get this time around that they wouldn't have been exposed to before, perhaps through what they have found out in publicity and cinema or elsewhere?
2: Well, I, I, once again, I try to pack as much new information as possible. The book has been completely redesigned. It's, uh, if you have the first three editions or one of the first three editions, this book is almost completely reillustrated. It's my first Bond book with color photography. I went over to Europe uh, at the end of 19, and I got some wonderful archive help from, from some of the biggest Bond fans in Europe. And uh, I, I have some wonderful photos. I also have some uh, illustrations uh, done by Jeff Marshall and Brian May that uh, are wonderfully evocative uh, illustrations of the Bond series uh, from their point of view. In other words, these are not official posters. These are done done as kind of a creative look at the series. So that art is just wonderful. And then I kind of called through the, the the same publisher that did the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia bought the new version of the Bond Encyclopedia, so they had me get rid of a lot of extraneous super trivia like signs and. And, uh, you know, things that were very arcane. And they made me focus more on the actors. So the actor biographies, and I have over 500 of them in the book, are much more complete, telling you not only some of their other key credits, but other performances they did with Bond actors and Bond team. So that gives you much more insight into the actors. And then um, I tried to cram as much information. See, this edition that's now, now had not included the Daniel Craig's. So this was my opportunity to really deep dive deep down and, and give you as much information as I could find about the Daniel Craig Bond movies. Go,
1: go,
0: go, go. Yeah. So I wanted to take, Steve, something you said earlier, the Sun and Lynch and the fan speculation. In your opinion, can anyone be James Bond? can anyone be 007? Is it just an assigned name? Is it just a assigned number? Or is this a specific
2: character? It's a very good question. I think we're all asking that question now in light of the latest movie. Um, you know, it is the movies and the movies is all about magic. and Anything can happen. An actor who's dead in one movie can be suddenly alive in a different actor's body in the next movie. I think that... Uh, the Bond character who's been with us for over 60 years uh, is is just uh, it survives one actor after another. You know, I, we can re, we can reboot this or I should say the producers can reboot it any way they want. But I will tell you that my sense is that he's got to be a member of the Commonwealth. You know, there's no way an American is going to play James Bond ever. I think that's that's a rule. And I think that um, it's definitely going to be a male. There's no way there's going to be a female James Bond. It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry. Ladies, if you're listening to this, you know, we love you, but you're just not James Bond.
1: We'll pass that message on to our other co-presenter, Jamie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in terms of their ethnicity... You know, I'll I'll say this because I don't want to sound like a racist because I'm not. But I think that they've had a successful series for 60 years. I don't think they're going to mess around with it too much. I think they're going to probably keep it to, you know, a Commonwealth white guy. That's my opinion. You know, now, if Idris Elba got the job tomorrow, I would celebrate it because he's a wonderful actor. I think he's probably too old to play Bond, though. So uh the, the actor who plays um, the lead in Bridgerton that television series I think his name is Reg I just always forget his last name.
1: Just he pro-
2: yeah, he's he's probably a better possibility than Idris but I also think I don't know to me the key to James Bond is his ability to punch somebody. Reg doesn't <laughs> look like he could take out anybody. I'm sorry.
1: I think so when you coming back to Bridgerton I think the actor that you're talking about if I can see him his name is Regé Jean Page I think or Regé Jean Page I've never pronounced that name before but yeah
2: he's He's enormously popular in America I mean that Bridgerton series is off the charts in terms of popularity particularly amongst women And I think the James Bond market is very critical because it's always been half and half, you know, Mm -hmm. men and women embrace James Bond. That's part of the success it's had. So, but I just wonder how physical he can be because the thing that Daniel Craig established over the last 15 years is he's probably the most physical of the bonds since Sean Connery. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, in this day and age, 21st century Uh, people want their spy movie action to be very realistic. You know, it has to be most of the time you're fighting international terrorism. You're going up against people who have no rules or scruples. And Bond's got to be a tough son of a bitch. I mean, Hmm. when Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman first started looking for James Bond, Cubby told me that day and at the on the lot, he said Bond had to be a two fisted Englishman. A two fisted mm-hmm. Englishman. That meant to me that he's got to be somebody where you can punch the guy and he goes down. When mm-hmm. Sean Connery punches, uh, m- you know, yeah. Mr. Jones in that first scene in Doctor No, yeah. he stays down. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Very interesting. So we wanted to ask um, Steve, where can our listeners find your writings on film and your encyclopedias. Do you have a website, social media handles?
2: You know, at this point, um, I point everybody to Amazon. It's probably the best place to find the James Bond movie encyclopedia these days. And it's Twilight Zone encyclopedia. And uh, use copies of how to publicize and promote today's motion pictures. Actually, the title is Real Exposure, R-E-E-L, and Combat Films. Those are all available I have a strong presence on Facebook. Uh, I have a page called the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia. I have a page called the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. I also have just plain old Steve Rubin, R U B I N. But I have a new site called Steve Rubin Saturday Night at the Movies, where every Saturday I publish a classic film review. And I've started my own podcast, um, which will debut in January at the present oh, fantastic. called... It's called Steve Rubin Saturday Night at the Movies. Um, I'm kind of grooming myself for uh, curatorship on on hosting classic movies. Uh, I don't. Do you, do you guys get Turner Classic Movies in the UK? Yeah,
1: it's called TCM, and we usually have it on the free digital service
2: here. Right, right. That's kind of they monopolize in the states classic movie presentations. But I noticed that the streaming networks all now run classic movies curated. So I'm trying to uh, move myself in the direction of maybe hosting some of those classics.
1: Excellent.
0: I think that just about brings us to the end of the interview, unless there's anything else you want to
2: ask, Trevor. Well, I, we didn't talk about my producing credits. I, I did make oh, my... Oh, yes.
0: Yes, please. Yeah. yeah, I
2: did make my producing debut for Showtime in 2002. I did a... a a baseball comedy called Bleacher Bums, which uh, we made in Toronto. And then the following year, I did a true World War II story that starred Linda Hamilton uh, from the Terminator movies uh, called Silent Night, about a truce in the Ardennes on Christmas Eve 1944 during the Battle of the Bulge, where American and German combat troops actually broke bread and sang songs and left as friends in the morning. True story. Uh, I went to Hawaii in 2000 and got the rights to that from the boy whose mother held the truce, a German woman. And we were nominated for four uh, Canadian Television Academy Awards, which was thrilling for us. So that came out in 2002 as well. And then um, I served as executive producer on a movie called My Suicide which was released under the title Archie's Final Project. And um, in 2009, uh, we took the film to Berlin and won the Berlin Film Festival Crystal Bear for Best Picture in its class, as well as 20 other Best Picture awards. It's available on Netflix. Uh, it's It's a teen dramedy about a boy who announces in his high school video class that he's going to commit suicide as his class project. And the movie is a journey film about how we get into the head of a suicidal teenager. Uh, it was one of David Carradine's last pictures. We had Mariel Hemingway as well, and Joe Montana and Nora Dunn, and an extraordinary young actor named Gabriel Sunday. Uh, that movie has been a boon to mental health amongst teenagers. We've had many letters from teens who've watched My Suicide, a.k.a. Archie's Final Project, and have come back from the brink of committing suicide. So it's, wow, it's a amazing. movie. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's an incredible movie in terms of exposing what people call the silent killer. Mm-hmm. People don't talk about suicide. Either they're embarrassed or they're hurt um, uh, or they're emotionally just uh, they can't deal with it. Our movie brings the issue up into the opening, particularly for young people. It was edited by the lead actor, a 21 year old. And uh, my friend, David Lee Miller, the director's son, uh, David directed it and Jordan also edited it. And it has that kind of frenetic pace that appeals to teenagers, kind of like, you know, what they like. So I highly recommend it for anybody who has uh, a friend or a family member who's going through issues, have them watch that movie. Absolutely. And then I've been been writing. Uh, I've been writing a lot the last um, 10 years, so I'm hoping to get some new movies made shortly. It's just a matter of getting the, uh, the right elements together.
1: Cool.
0: And we can find updates about this on your Facebook page and your other social media handles. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well... Steve it has been an absolute pleasure a true inspirational interview I'd like to thank you so much for coming along and talking
2: to us thank you all very much and happy holidays to you and everyone else and uh, uh, keep watching movies Yeah,
1: thank you it's my pleasure to have you on as well so Thanks.
0: it just remains for us to thank our very very special guest Stephen J Rubin and of course my co-presenter DJ Trevor Jones and myself King Tom <laughs> Till next time we have been Geek Sweat Look out for more inspirational interviews very soon. Take care and happy holidays.